Our um, reading today is, is unique. It's the only place in the Bible where we read anything at all about Jesus between his birth or roughly the time of his birth and his baptism. There's one other story that happens after birth. It's the, the story we, we looked at a couple of weeks ago, um, the story of the wise men, the magi who came and visited um, uh, and uh, their flight into Egypt sometime within the first couple of years after Jesus was born. They were still apparently in Bethlehem. Um, so there's just this one story, this single story about Jesus as a little baby. Um, uh, I should say there's only one story in the Bible. There are actually lots of stories about Jesus um, as, a, as a little boy. I think um, he appeals to us uh, in a way that, as I mentioned at Christmas Eve, um, uh, superheroes do. And so we want to know what would it be like if he was Superboy with his dog Crypto. We have this we have this desire to imagine what Jesus was like as a as a little boy, and um, the Bible doesn't satisfy us, so we go elsewhere. Uh, how many of you know who who Anne Rice is? Anne Rice. She wrote a bunch of or several of you. Okay, the readers. Uh, she wrote a bunch of books um, back in the '90s about vampires, and then in 1998 she. Um, she was uh, um, reconverted, I guess, to her birth faith. She was a lapsed Roman Catholic, and then in 1998, she uh, she became um, a believer again and is now a, a practicing Roman Catholic. And she began a series of books um, about Jesus, and and one of them is called uh, it's called Christ the Lord out of Egypt. I have not read it myself, but I've read summaries, and I know something about it because. She based uh, a lot of the book on something called the Infancy Gospel of Thomas. Um, if you've heard about the Gospel of Thomas, uh, this is a different document. It's a, it's a, I don't know what the word would be. It's called extra biblical literature. It's part of the the collection of writings uh, from the ancient world that are not part of the Bible. So the Infancy Gospel of Thomas, um, and it's a bunch of stories about what Jesus must have been like as a baby. So. In these stories, uh, Jesus does all kinds of amazing um, and implausible uh, uh, stunts. Uh, for example, Jesus makes um, some some birds out of clay. He makes some little birds, and then he brings them to life, and they go fluttering around. Uh, Jesus is in the shop one day with uh, Joseph, and he needs to make uh, he needs two to to do the thing he's working on. He needs two pieces of wood, and they have to be the same length. And Joseph has two pieces of wood. But they're not the same length. So Jesus makes the, the shorter one grow to the length of the longer one. Um, in, in, there are several stories where somebody irritates Jesus uh, one way or the other. This is the little boy Jesus. And he curses them and they die. And in fact, there's, there's an amusing point where Joseph tells Mary, keep the kid indoors. Because so many people are dying, the authorities are going to get nervous <laughs> Uh, you know that our neighbors keep dropping over. So, so the, the story has this idea of Jesus as kind of growing into his superpowers. He's he's hasn't learned to master them, and he's a little bit sloppy with them. And you know, people die because of it. So, so this infancy gospel uh, of Thomas is um, it's it's amusing and um, it's even charming in places. It's just not in the Bible. It's 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 made up. Um, it's not it's not um, unfamiliar with events in the Bible. In fact, it seems to refer to this uh, occasion in the in the temple that we read about. But 
uh, while it was known to the early church uh, from about the the second part of the second century, so from sometime in the 150 to 200 time frame, people had heard of it. Um, we don't know if they heard of uh, a particular book or if they just heard stories that people passed around. Like, like I don't know where I heard that George Washington chopped down a cherry tree. You know, I, I heard it somewhere, and I'm sure it's in books, but but people people were aware of it in that sense. But nobody gave it credence. Nobody viewed it as scripture, and it has never been viewed as scripture. So it is just one of these these uh, uh, extra biblical literatures, the the infancy gospel of Thomas, um, and uh, uh, it's it's not what we read in the Bible. And I think it's because we are dissatisfied. We we wish there was more more interest and more adventure and more uh, human interest, more color commentary in the Bible. But what I want to do today is look at what is actually in the Bible and see what we see there. It says it says now every year his parents, Jesus's parents, went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. Uh, they lived in Nazareth, as as Luke tells us. But they traveled about 80 to 100 miles um, down to, or they called it up to, um, up to Jerusalem. It's south, but they went uphill. Um, so they went, they went uh, up to Jerusalem every year for the festival. Uh, according to the uh, Hebrew scriptures, every adult male had to go to the festival. But um, since it was basically a good fun time, uh, the women started saying, hey, how come we can't go too? And so uh, during the time before the the New Testament, it became pretty conventional for families from all over uh, the ancient um, uh, Israel to travel to Jerusalem for this week of party. And they would have the festivals, they would do the re- religious rituals, but they'd also just eat and they'd have fun and they'd sing songs. Uh, there's about a dozen songs in the Psalms which are songs of ascent. And they were songs that the pilgrims would sing to each other as they as they made the ascent up into Jerusalem. So it was just a festival time. It was a party time. And uh, people went and they had a good time. And then after the week was done, they went home. So every year his parents were in the habit of doing this. And when Jesus was 12 years old, they went up as usual to the festival. They stayed for the full week. And when the festival was ended, they started to return but unbeknownst to them, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. Now, they assumed that uh, he was with the other, right? You can imagine how this works. The, the women travelers are like in one group, and they're talking about whatever women talk about. I don't know. Um, and the men are talking about motorcycles or tools or something like that, right? And, um, and each one of them assumes that Jesus is with the other one, right? Uh, Jesus is 12... He's, he's uh, just young enough to hang out with the women, but more importantly, with the other kids, right? So Jesus is hanging out with the kids and not with the men, except Mary thinks the opposite. Mary thinks Jesus is with the men. And they, they get to the first days, the end of the first day's travel. They camp there and know Jesus. And you can imagine the recriminations. I thought you, I thought you said you were going to take, I thought he was with you. How come he's not, you know, you can imagine how that conversation went. But, Jesus wasn't with them. So they say goodbye to their traveling companions. They say, going back, we'll see you in Nazareth. We're going to go back to Jerusalem and we'll look for Jesus. So they spend a day getting out here. They spend a day getting back to Jerusalem. And then on the third day, sometime on the third day, they look in the temple and they find Jesus there. He was 
sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Now, um, uh, it doesn't say anything about the questions, uh, what, what they were good or bad questions. It does say, all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. So maybe they were really particularly perceptive questions, but they weren't like Sermon in the Mountain Great, we know, because they aren't recorded. Mary treasured all these things in her heart, uh, but nothing so profound that it made its way into Scripture. Um, so Jesus was probably uh, a, a very wise, a personable, bright 12-year-old boy going to Sunday school and doing a good job of it. But nothing, he wasn't like delivering uh, wisdom from on high. He was just a 12-year-old boy in Sunday school. Um, for me, I've, I've taught 12-year-old boys in Sunday school, and for me, the thought of them sitting there at all, you know, just sitting still in Sunday school is, a, is kind of a little miracle right there. And the thought of doing it for three days straight, um, I, I, can't, I can't even imagine that. So maybe that was what amazed people, is that, is that Jesus was sitting still for three days. Um, but, but his parents saw him, and they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Child, why have you treated us like this? Look, your father and I have been searching for you in great anxiety. So let me ask you this. Why is Mary anxious? If she has got Superboy living in her house, if he flies around and lasers things with his eyes, why is she anxious? She wouldn't be anxious if Superboy were living in her house. She's anxious because a boy is living in her house. Just an ordinary boy. She remembers just how ordinary Jesus is. She remembers the time that Jesus got sick and vomited all night, and they were wondering if he was going to die. She remembers the time he fell out of the tree that she told him not to climb, and he fell down and broke his arm. She, well, I, I actually don't know. I'm making it up, just like Anne Rice and just like um, the Infancy Gospel of Thomas. But Mary is anxious because she knows Jesus is an ordinary boy. She says, Child, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been searching for you in great anxiety. And Jesus, this may be the first place in Scripture, well, it certainly is the first place in his life, um, the first place in Scripture where Jesus answers a question with a question, and he goes on to make an art form of it. But he says, he says, why were you searching for me? Didn't you know I would be in my father's house, that I had to be, that I must be in my father's house? Jesus answers their question, why? Why have you done this? With, well, because I have my own agenda. This is the problem we have with Jesus. We ask ourselves, why? Who, who has not asked Jesus why? I've asked Jesus the question why all week long. And Jesus reminds me that he has his own agenda. It's a good agenda, but it's mystifying. I don't understand why Jesus does the things he does. I don't understand why there was a fire. I don't understand I don't understand why they died. I don't understand why the little baby died. I certainly don't understand why her mother died. I don't understand why they had to die who we knew and when the other woman lived. 
I don't understand why they had to go to Cameroon. I don't understand anything. So I take comfort from this passage because I know that Jesus understands my pain. He understands my questioning. Not because he's sitting up in heaven watching it, but because he has seen it in his own mother's eyes. He's looked at her, seen her tears. When she wanted to know, why? Why, Jesus? Why are you doing this? She wants to know why, and he's saying, because I have my own agenda. And that's what Jesus is telling us. He has his own agenda. There's a verse in in uh, Second Timothy um, that they made a great song out of. And I remember this the, the song more than the verse. Let me read it to you. Paul is talking about why he suffers, and Paul certainly suffers more than I ever did. And he says this, he says, I know the one in whom I have put my trust. Some of you know the song, I know not why this and I know not why that, but I know whom I have believed, the old language of the King James Bible. I know whom I have believed, I know the one in whom I put my trust. I don't I don't know why Jesus does the things he does. I don't understand anything about that fire but I know the one in whom I've put my trust. And I know he is merciful and he is rich in loving kindness. And I believe that at least part of the reason that he allowed us to become part of that family is because he is rich in mercy and loving kindness. See, Jesus knew that the fire would happen. Jesus saw it thousands of years ago. He knew that this was going to happen. And in his wisdom, his wisdom that I do not understand, he determined that he would allow it to take place. And so he brought Daniel and Gladys and Joanne to us. We'd only begun to get to know them. But he brought them to us and allowed us to join them to our church because he knew how much support Daniel would need. And he's calling our church to provide it. So, we're going to rally around Daniel. I don't know what we can do. I, I, I don't know. There's, there's, if, if money could somehow bring back Joanne and um, Gladys, I would be here all day hectoring you to get out your checkbooks. But it won't. We know that. This is not a problem that money can solve. But it brings with it problems that money can't solve. Daniel and Daniel Essam will be traveling with him, and Daniel has an older child from another marriage um, who will be traveling back to uh, Cameroon in the next month. I'm going to invite you all to give a gift to this church's benevolence fund or if you prefer directly to to Daniel, um, the the there's a reason that pastors learn these kinds of things, um, and Pete can check me on this. Um, if people give a gift to someone um, 
directly, then it's not tax deductible. So if you're thinking, I'd like to give so much that it'll make a difference on my income taxes, please do. But give it to the church's benevolence fund because we help people like Daniel at times like this. Um, so if, if that's where your head's at, let me encourage you to give to the benevolence fund. Um, if, if you're thinking, well, what if we give so much money that there's too much, then again, give to the benevolence fund because we will certainly find a good home for that money. But let me invite you to put yourself for a moment in Daniel's position and say, what, what, what can I do? How can I, how can I endure? And ask yourself, what, what could help him? And the only thing that I know of right now is help with his trip. So let's, let's do what we can to rally around them. Let's rally around the Essams as they support him and all of his, his friends from the Cameroonian community here um, that we met back in October as they support them. Let's do what we can to support all of them. Um, I don't know why Jesus does these things. But I know when he sees our tears, he has seen them before. He's looked at his mother when she asked him the same question, why have you treated us like this? And when he says, I have my own agenda, it's said from love. It's not because he hates us or because he enjoys making us sad. It's because the work he's doing is important. And I don't understand how or why. But I know he has been there. He has seen the tears. And he wouldn't do it if he didn't have to. So let me invite you. Let's rally around the Essams. Let's do what we can, what little, precious little we can do to support uh, Daniel Oban. Amen. Let, let me invite you one other thing. I meant to say this. The only thing, you know, we can, we can support them with money. Let me ask you, make a commitment. Say to yourself, I'm going to pray daily. I'm going to pray daily that Daniel will have the strength just to carry on, just to get through the next month. Make a commitment to yourself. I'm going to pray daily every day this month that Daniel has strength to carry on. Let's do that.